Food is a powerful tool for building relationships, warming the soul, and providing comfort. Food can also tell us a lot about a culture and can tell us a lot about our history. For Foodways historian Joyce White, historic food is not only her passion, it's also her career. Warm up something tasty as we talk historic food on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today we're joined by Joyce White. Joyce is a foodways historian operating A Taste of History with Joyce White, offering food history presentations with tastings on a variety of topics. She's also the foodways consultant to the Circa 1801 Riversdale House Museum in Riverdale Park, Maryland, and was the consultant for the restoration of the 18th century kitchen at Annapolis's William Peca House, and was the guest curator for the Maryland State Exhibit for the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, Louisiana. Joyce, it is a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I, I'm excited to talk to you about all things historic food and how you get into this and what kind of things you focus on. But we love to start these interviews by getting to know the person we're talking to a little bit more. So tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of like your background, where you grew up, and, and how does one become a food historian? Okay. Um, I'm actually from New York, even though I do a lot with Maryland food history. I've lived here for 20, almost 22 years. Um, I grew up right outside of New York City, and I went to college in a little town in the Finger Lakes, New York, called um, Hobart and William Smith Colleges, which is in Geneva. And they have a fantastic historical society uh, that runs the uh, Rose Hill Manor, which is a circa 1840 site. And for an internship there, I was immersed in open hearth cooking for a special program that they do with the entire fourth grade of the entire county. So I had to learn pretty quickly how to make a cake in the hearth, even though I had never even grew up with a, a fireplace in my house. So I really had a lot to learn about making the fire, learning the different steps and preparing the cake in uh, circa 1840 way, and then actually presenting the kids with an actual cake that was cooked through, not burned on the outside and raw on the inside, which did happen several times. Um, but you you try over and over again, and you finally get it right. So that's sort of how I got interested in the open hearth cooking. And um, then my first job out of college was at a small historic site in Rye, New York, called the Rye Historical Society Square House Museum, where we had a working hearth, and I did a lot of the programming there on the hearth. So um, I was able to really use those skills and grow them in that um, capacity and in that site, and then throughout the years in many different other sites. So this sort of the it was really you know a baptism by fire, literally for me, getting into the food history world. So it's it's interesting. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? So are you employed at one specific site? Do you do a lot of consulting work? Um, what is the what's the job the job world look like for a food waste historian? It's not profitable, uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of financial gain. It is definitely uh, rewarding. I enjoy it very much. I've done a lot of different things over the years. I have worked exclusively at uh, specific sites. 
And um, for the last 10 years, I've been on my own doing consulting. As you said in the intro, I am the food waste consultant to Riversdale House Museum in Riverdale Park, Maryland. And I also have developed my own business where I do PowerPoint presentations on a variety of different food history topics. And uh, most of the time, um, the uh, booking organization will include tastings boxes for each person who's participating in that presentation. So at the end or even throughout the program, uh, you can open your box and you can try some of the things that I'm actually talking about in the PowerPoint presentation, which has been a lot of fun. So I've been doing that for 10 years. And right now I'm also starting to do more work with TV and I am writing two books. And so I spend a lot of my time sitting at my desk um, doing research. Um, you know, certain days are uh, filled with research and some days are filled with experimentations in the kitchen. So um, like this morning I was working with grinding chocolate because that's one of the books that I'm working on is on chocolate. So any day could be different. And in terms of your kitchen, I guess we should, we'll talk about all that in a second, but do you have an open hearth in, in your kitchen? Well, unfortunately, one of the reasons I um, went out on my own to do the PowerPoint presentations um, 10 years ago is because I had always had asthma, but it got se- severe with working at Riversdale because we were, we were using the hearth several days a week. And um, I developed um, really, really difficult, troubled breathing. So I am no longer able to do open hearth cooking. So I had to learn how to readapt to continue to do food history, but do it in a different way. So yes, I do have a hearth in my house, um, but I don't use it anymore. And I have access to many other hearths in a historic setting, but I don't, I'm not really allowed to use them anymore. I may try it again um, if, if, if I improve. Um, so far that hasn't happened. You've seen some really well-seasoned wood with no smoke, I guess. Um, part of it, um, I think the big problem when you're working at a historic hearth is that the um, the draw of the smoke isn't great. Okay. Um, they, these hearths don't tend to get cleaned as frequently as they should because of issues with historic preservation. Um, buildings are, you know, they've settled over the years, so things happen, and uh, it just didn't work for me anymore. And also, you do get wood that's donated, which is great. I love it when the community donates things to, you know, help educational uh, purposes of a historic site. But sometimes we don't really know where the wood's been. Um, sometimes there have been funky fumes coming off them. So it, it, it you know, if you're doing this on a regular basis, it can be, you know, definitely a health issue if you have already have asthma. So yeah, and it also sort of begs the question: what would have happened during the historic period had you had an ailment like that, but still needed to cook? Obviously, could have been a real issue. Probably would have had to do more of the cooking outside, or you know, have one of my daughters help. <laughs> that right. sort of thing. Yeah. So you know, other than sort of historic food being fun and in tasty and all those sorts of things. What is there, what is the value in learning about these old dishes? I mean, what is sort of the broader relevance do you feel of the kind of work that you do? Yeah, I think it's important to look at the food choices that people make based on their socioeconomic class and um, also looking at the technology and how that's changed over time. You know, when things get cheaper, they tend to lose their status. So things like gelatins were a very high status food prior to the 
mid to late 19th century introduction of what they called portable or pocket gelatins, which are basically what we buy now, which is like the, the Knox granules, things of that nature. Um, so once Jell-O comes out in 1896, it's no longer all that fashionable because it's available to everyone. It's democratized. Um, same thing with ice creams and ices. If you are uh, a wealthy person, you can afford to have an ice house. Um, so therefore you can serve ice dishes to your guests in the middle of the summer. Um, if you're poor, you're not going to have access to that. Once we get refrigeration and freezers and, you know, everybody has that, it's no longer a status food anymore. It's something everybody enjoys. Um, so looking at, at those issues is important. Um, a lot of what I do for Riverside House Museum does tend to focus on the higher um, socioeconomic um, classes because the, the Calverts who owned that house were um, definitely landed gentry. Um, so looking at the um, number of wealthy uh, of, of dishes that would be served to a wealthy family per per meal, um, it, it could range in any anywhere from you know maybe 15 to you know dozens and dozens of dishes spread over the course of about three courses for the meal, as opposed to again looking at um, maybe an indentured servant and what they were eating, which would definitely have just been more like what we'd call a set it and forget it meal, something that stewed all day long in a pot served with some cornbread. Um, so you definitely um, see the differences in what people are eating. Uh, people back um, in the day, and no matter what your class was, generally were eating a wider variety of proteins getting wildfowl and um, different, even domestic animals, just eating different parts of them that we would consider like a no-go, like the awful, like liver and tripe, brains, sweetbreads, things like that were very fashionable. So in terms of that, in terms of sort of the fashionability, but also you're talking about, you know, sort of expanded proteins and things like that. Do you think do you have any sense or do you have any strong opinion on whether or not modern diets would benefit from returning to some of these older recipes or or sort of food ways of the past? Have you thought about that much? Um, that's a really good question. I think in, there's pros and cons to to both artic, um, sides of the argument. Um, wealthy people tended to use more refined flours and sugars in the way that we do now, so the white flours and the white sugar, as opposed to the poor people who are consuming more whole grain and um, maybe sugars that have more of the natural molasses in them because they're cheaper. And so in that case, the poorer people are eating a healthier diet than the upper classes. Um, so I think definitely looking at, at those diets and comparing and contrasting the health of um, the people at the time um, with today, that's definitely something that could be um, seen as a pro to looking at the, the past, kind of um, seeing it from both sides. Um, but I think there's this myth that everything was better in the olden days, you know, um, there were adulterants that existed in food. Um, sawdust was in flour. Um, they used brick dust, lead, and vermilion to color chocolate, even mm. up through the 19th century. Now you're not doing um, that with your chocolate, right? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> they were cooking equipment that may have been dangerous, like pewter, um, which can leach lead into the food. Um, they were treating their milk with borax, basically boric acid, to get the sour taste out. So they were selling milk that maybe was past its sell-by date by our standards, um, which oftentimes resulted in um, people drinking it, getting bovine TB, which was deadly, painful and deadly. So, you know, again, you have to look at each different type of food and the recipe and um, the situation differently. Definitely 
more seasonal, more local um, consumption of food would, would benefit everybody. So, um, again, the poorer people were doing that. The wealthy people were forcing things in greenhouses or uh, orangeries, as they would call them. A good example of that would be at Historic Hampton in Towson. They have a beautiful orangery, which would have been heated artificially throughout the year to force different things like strawberries and melons and pineapples and oranges, of course, lemons, that sort of thing. So, I mean, how often, it, you know, obviously you, you know this stuff inside and out, and we talked about how you can't do the open hearth piece, but obviously there's other things that you can do and you can cook, you know, convert those recipes to a stove and things like that. How often are you right. cooking historic dishes? Like I, I imagine, I think a lot of us think of like, oh, she's a food waste historian. She must just every day be making all of these, you know, syllabubs for every dessert and everything like that. Is that's what it's like to, to live your life or, or are we, are we off a little bit? A little bit. I, I, a lot of it is research before I'll even to, you know, step into the kitchen. Um, I will do a lot of research. I'll put together what's called a cultural collection of a recipe, and I will try try to find different um, iterations of that same recipe over time to kind of see how it's changed and see the different methods that were being employed. Um, so, you know, you really need to start with reading as, as with any kind of um, history. I will cook historic foods when I'm sort of testing them for a book or testing them for an article. In many, many times, you, you want to use, um, you know, at least three recipes or do, do the, the recipe at least three times to get it right. Um, sometimes you'll have one recipe that is not quite a recipe. It's what we'd call an aid memoir. So it's just somebody jotting down some notes about the recipe. So a lot of times you'll have to go back and try to find other recipes that maybe give a little bit more information. So there's a lot of play with that. I'm not cooking every day. I'm not cooking as much as I would like to be at this point in time, just right now, because I'm doing more writing and testing with chocolate and doing what we call experimental archaeology. So trying to test the different grinds of chocolate to see what would probably have been um, in use in the 18th and early 19th centuries, as opposed to what then emerged in the 20th century. So yeah, it's just a, it, it, you just never know with me what I'm going to be doing from one day to the next. Um, and when I was working on my Maryland food history book, I spent a whole summer testing recipes. So I was in the kitchen almost every you know weekday. Now, do you have a lot of friends who like to stop by to be your taste testers? Or I can't imagine you can eat all of it yourself. <laughs> yeah, I don't, eat, you don't eat all of it. I usually, I, I would be, you know, 500 pounds if I ate everything. <laughs> um, so I'll, um, I will definitely offer it to other people, to family and friends. Um, we, I have had dinners here where I've just made a whole bunch of recipes and tested them. Um, so that does happen. Yes. And I'd like that to happen more in the future. Just have to, haven't gotten to that point where it's a reg on, done on a regular basis. So if, if people want to get into this, I mean, clearly you've, you've mentioned um, some of the work that you've done, the writing that you're doing. And I want to give you a, a chance in a few minutes here just to kind of go through all the different books that you've published and how people can get, get them and how they can find out more about you and, and read your research and follow you on Facebook and all that good stuff. But sort of in a broader sense, if people want to get into making historic dishes, um, is there something that you would recommend that they read? Is there perhaps like a, a simple first dish or a recipe that would be sort of satisfying and has a good history behind it that you might recommend? Yeah, I think one of the, the best recipes um, are to work with our cake recipes because I think they show you a wide variety of methods that were used in, in the pre-industrial days. So one recipe I would recommend, it's very simple, called cupcake, and it's literally one cup butter, 
two cups sugar, three cups flour, and four eggs. It's also known, therefore, as one, two, three, four cakes. So it's a very easy recipe to remember. Um, if you wanted to do this as authentically as you possibly can, you would ideally make your own butter and wash it, rinse it, uh, rinse the buttermilk out, rinse all that sour milk out. Um, you would grind up your sugar. You'd you know order a sugar cone from Williamsburg and uh, grind up the sugar. Um, so that's um, great. You would you can even add spices to this. So you could you know grind your own spices and add that to the dish. You want to use flour that's appropriate. So that's another issue. The flour we buy in the grocery stores tends to come from a hard red wheat, whereas the flour that was being grown on the East Coast, particularly in Maryland, was a soft winter wheat. Does that give it so, a different uh, flavor? It sure does. Um, like a whole grain pastry flour would be um, ideal. And and that uh, brings up another point, too. If you've ever heard of Maryland beaten biscuits. Right. Right. So they have a reputation as being as hard as hockey pucks. Um, and that's because um, more recent days, people were making them with that hard red wheat. You want to use that whole grain, soft pastry flour. And, and that, then that want- gives you a different texture then? a very different texture. They'll last for days. Now, again, they're not biscuits like a baking powder biscuit. They were never meant to be that. That comes later. This is more like a bread, Um, but it won't be hard bread. So again, using the right ingredients is important, and that can be challenging. Um, It can be expensive. So you just have to decide, you know, what do I want to get out of this recipe? Do I just want to recreate it with the ingredients I can get at my local grocery store just to get a feel for the the flavors and the taste. And that's fine. You can do that. Or you can take it to that next level and really try to source the right um, sort of heirloom ingredients to give it more authenticity. And in terms of like references, books, um, maybe this is a good, good chance to let people know about the books that you've authored and then maybe other ones that you might recommend. Well, actually, I wish I wish my books were out in print right now. They're still in process, so they won't be out probably for at least another year. Um, But I do have a blog. It's just a taste of history with Joyce White and the accompanying Facebook page, also a taste of history with Joyce White. And then my website is a taste of history.net. So you can find me on all of those different um, platforms. So that's a good way to find your stuff. Do you have any, any favorite historic recipe books or anything someone out there maybe for Christmas coming up would want to pick up? Um, sure. There's plenty of really interesting books. A good one for this area is Mary Randolph's The Virginia Housewife, even though it's Virginia. The recipes in there would um, would have worked very well in Maryland. The, the two areas were very similar um, in terms of what was being grown and the type of culture that um, emerged and economy that emerged. So that's a fantastic cookbook. And it's written by the I'm going to get this right. The sister-in-law of Martha Jefferson Randolph, who was the daughter of Thomas Jefferson. Um, And she had fallen on hard times and um, basically started running um, a boarding house where she served food. And so this book was then was then published. So that's a great um, book to start with. If you want to go real simple, uh, Lydia Marie Childs, The Frugal Housewife, um, dedicated to those who are not ashamed of economy, was published in Boston in 1832. That's a good way to go because being that there's the word frugal in that title will give you a really um, simpler um, look at the recipes. So she, you know, there's not going to be elaborate meals. So I think for a beginner, that would be a good place to start. Um, then there are other books that are interesting. The first cookbook published in America was actually um, a reprint of a British cookbook 
by Eliza Smith called The Complete Housewife. And that was published in Virginia by William Parks at Williamsburg in 1742. So, um, and you can go online and order that book. Um, so again, he kind of edited the book a little bit to make it appeal to Virginians. So that gives you a good sense of what Virginians were eating. Um, and then there's plenty of Maryland on uh, 19th century cookbooks. There's uh, Elizabeth Ellicott Lee's Domestic Cookery. That was first published in 1853. Um, Mary Lloyd Tyson's The Queen of the Kitchen, um, a collection of old Maryland recipes that was published in Baltimore in 1870. And then um, Mrs. B.C. Howard, or uh, otherwise known as Jane Grant Gilmore Howard, she published 50 Years in a Maryland Kitchen in 1873. Um, however, most of her recipes were pirated from Tyson, which you see a lot in those days. Um, a lot of these. I think you see a lot of that today, still, right? I mean, it's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, complete, complete um, full recipes, typos and all sometimes. Um, and then the other thing you could do if you really want to get into historic cooking is go to your local um, archives. If you live near, like if you live in Annapolis in the area, the Maryland State Archives, or go to the Baltimore Historical Society, or anywhere if it, you, that you're listening to this, if, if there's some sort of historical society um, or repository of old documents, and look up the manuscript um, collections for recipes, and you'd be surprised uh, what treasures you can find in those books, because women, oftentimes, what they would do is they would write recipes down in what we call commonplace books, or basically a journal. And they would write their favorite recipes down in those journals, because maybe they didn't want to take the very expensive book into the kitchen and soil it, um, or somebody's giving them the recipe. Kind of the way we clip articles and print them off now, that was their version of doing that. So it shows you what they really liked and the recipes that they wanted to try or um you know, keep in their collection for future reference. Well, I think that's a fantastic introduction of some of the resources out there. Obviously, there's some really good stuff for this region and, and probably most regions across the country. I am curious, you know, you, you handed out your information on how people can find out more about you. Do you ever offer classes? I do um, through, like, Riversdale. Okay. I'm also on the board of studies at the Hammond Harwood House in Annapolis on Maryland Avenue, and we have a class coming up. On December 2nd, um, if anyone's familiar with Annapolis, you would know that that is the Annapolis um, Chocolate Binge Festival Day. So we are going to pregame at the Hammond Harwood House at 11 o'clock, um, and you're going to get to learn all about the history of chocolate and get to grind chocolate on a Aztec-style matate and sample a wide variety of historic chocolate treats. So if you're interested in that, you can call the Hammond Harwood House uh, or go online and get more information about that. It's December 2nd at 11 a.m. Very good. That that sounds super cool. As we kind of move towards the conclusion here, I'm curious. Obviously, you spend a lot of time with historic foods, a lot of time doing different dishes. Do you have a favorite historic meal that you normally cook or perhaps one that you've had before that you just think is amazing or really tells a great story? Um, there are so many different dishes that I've made. Um, and meals back then, uh, as I mentioned before, they were served in these very uh, large uh, courses. So you'd have you know dozens of dishes um, for one meal. So um, I think th there are different component parts to that that I like. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy making, I made it for the Eat in the Chesapeake um, program on Maryland Public Television. And it's a mock turtle soup. And um, turtle soup was very fashionable, but if you couldn't get turtle, you could make it with a calf's head instead. Hmm. So um, that's what we did. And um, it's basically, uh, think of a Maryland uh, crab soup, 
like a dark stock, like tomatoey, um, lots of herbs and vegetables. And but I have to with, ask: is the is the calf's head left in it just to stare at you when you serve it, or is it is that removed? No, you make the stock with the calf's head, and then you remove the calf's head and remove all the meat, and and chop up the tongue. And it's very gelatinous. There's a lot of collagen in the head, a lot of uh, connective tissue there, and the collagen and the protein. And so then you can um, you can just pick it apart like that, or you can put it in um, uh, basically on a plate and weight it down. And because there's so much collagen in it, it will all congeal. And then you can uh, set that in the refrigerator for a couple of hours uh, or overnight. And then the next day it will be one solid brick. And then you can cut that up into different chunks. So that's what then you would then put in the soup stock with the vegetables. And, and you're that. assuring us, I mean, everyone listening is, is wondering right now, you're assuring us that this is, this is delicious. It is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to have to take your word for it. We don't have a way to, to truth that on Preserve Cast, but uh, you painted quite the picture of the calf's head there, uh, Joyce. Yeah. So now, and I have, to, I have to ask, you weren't able to source a tur- turtle, but you were able to get your hands on a calf's head. Well, yeah, and terrapin, you know, is illegal. Right. To buy. Um, and honestly, you have to, when you make turtle soup, it's more gruesome to me personally because I like turtles. I couldn't eat them. Yeah. And you have to throw four turtles into the pot live. It's like doing lobster. Oh, so my. But a lobster, with, lobster with m- more articulated faces. Exactly. Mm. So that's me. I, I, you know, I have to draw the line somewhere, and that's. That's where I draw it. I can do the head. I can't do the. I can't do the poor turtle. The poor terrapin. So that kind of answers the question of. I mean, at least for me, maybe not for you, of your favorite historic meal and perhaps your weirdest historic meal. I think we may have gotten the. I don't know. <laughs> right. did, is, is there a weirder one? That I mean, it's not weird, but it, it is. It is out there. It's definitely different than what people are used to. I guess. It's definitely weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool, though. I mean, that's and is if people wanted to read about your mock turtle soup or see it, that would be on your website as well. On my website. And then you can also go to um, MPT. I'm not sure if it's still up, but um, Maryland Public Television. Yeah. Yeah. The Eat in the Chesapeake, the five feasts. I'm the last feast. So the historic feast. Well, you said it before, but why don't you give us the website? Someone's listening. They want to go out. They want to make that mock turtle soup for, you know, upcoming Christmas uh, gathering or something like that. What's your website again, Joyce? It's just um, a tasteofhistory.net, and you can just Google a taste of history with Joyce White, you know, mock turtle soup or whatever. <laughs> It'll come up. So before we depart here, uh, the hardest question we ask of most historians, your favorite historic building or place? Well, so I work with Riversdale, and I'm on the board at the Hammond Harwood House. So, um, so it sounds like it can really, be neither of those. Yeah, I mean that those are two of my favorites. I've done work at the Pega House. Um, I, I have to say, I, I love that style of architecture, the Georgian style of architecture. So, um, I, I do. I have to narrow it down to one. You have to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. We won't air this otherwise. <laughs> okay, I'll say Riversdale because they have the hearth. Okay, that works. See, that's perfect for perfect for the foodways historian. Yes, exactly. So, Joyce, this has been an absolute pleasure. So much fun to talk with you. Um, so fin- fascinating because food really connects both history with the present. It gives you something tactile and something that you can actually sink your teeth into, literally. And it's just been so much fun, and so so appreciate the good work that you're doing out there. Thank you so much for joining us today on PreserveCast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.